Greetings from Nashville, Tennessee. My wife and I have been here all this week for the Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting. In fact, this past Sunday, we left out very early so that we could arrive in the city here to worship uh, in Nashville. And that's what we were able to do. But it also meant that we were not uh, in Waycross and I wasn't able to preach at Central Baptist. So there's not a sermon podcast this week of a current sermon. So I thought I would share with you something I preached in 2018 from the, from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9, 10, and 11. I hope this will encourage you. I hope it will be a blessing to you. And I do look forward to being back in the pulpit of Central Baptist this coming Sunday. I'll be continuing to preach the series I've been in on the parables from the Gospel of Luke. And as always, I so much appreciate you listening and connecting. And uh, if you're in the Waycross area, I would love for you to join us at Central Baptist there on 201 Ava Street at 1030 this coming Sunday. God bless. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, here's what the Word of God says beginning in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate or homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. A few weeks ago in Minersville, Pennsylvania, a man made an attempt to clear his conscience by paying a 44-year-old parking ticket. The Minersville Police Department received a letter with a $5 bill in it and the note and a note with a return address as feeling guilty Wayward Road Anytown California. The the, the, police, the chief of police told the local news uh, agency there that uh, the letter read this way it said dear PD I've been carrying this ticket around for 40 plus years always intending to pay Forgive me if I don't give you my information with respect, Dave. It was from a 1974 ticket uh, in the eastern Pennsylvania town that originally would have cost $2. The, the man sent $5. He said the extra three was for interest. The little no, local news report on it said that the same ticket today carried a fine of about $20. The chief of police said that the, the ticket was for a car with Ohio plates, but because it was so old, the department didn't have the technology to track the out-of-state tags back then, and of course, those records are long gone. We laugh at that because we understand that guilt is a pretty powerful emotion. This man paying a $5 ticket from 44 years ago seems somewhat insignificant, but obviously he'd been feeling guilty for 44 years. And he wanted to get that guilt off of his conscience. And so for $5 and a stamp, 
he was able to send it off and, and get some, we hope, some relief from his guilt from his ticket. But you and I know that there are sins that no matter what you do and no amount of penance that you perform, that those guilts and those shames that are attached to those things cannot be assuaged. The church at Corinth was located in a city that was famous for its wickedness. Books have been written about the the wickedness, the perversion of Corinth. To be honest with you, even though I have had opportunities to read about and and study the book of Corinth and the the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians, the life of Paul, and as a result of that, the, the state of affairs in the Corinth church, every time I spend a little time reading about the the, uh, the, just the city of Corinth in the day of Paul, I have almost always surprised at the depth of depravity. I read something this week about, about uh, when I was studying for this passage about some of the practices in Corinth, and frankly, they're just too gross to share with you tonight. And they're perverted, they're, they were nasty, but they were common and familiar and a regular thing in the days that Paul was writing to the church. And so we have to understand that many of the Christians in the Corinth church had been saved out of wicked lifestyle. So when Paul gives this list of sins, and then he follows that with, and such were some of you, that's not, that's not a, a rhetorical question. It's not a trick of, uh, of speech. He's speaking honestly there. He knows that in the church... There were people that are in the church, serving the church, faithful to the church, believers in the church, who if they were to stand up and tell their testimony, their testimony included many of the things that he lists in this passage, and some much worse than this. He's writing to the church knowing that some of them were struggling with the temptation to return to their former sins, and still others were struggling with understanding their new identity in Christ free from their former sins. So tonight, I just want to speak in two ways tonight, really a positive and a negative. The first is this. This is the negative. Reject what is no more. We believe, and the Bible teaches, that when you are saved, who you were before Christ is dead. When we bury people, excuse me, when we baptize people, we say you are buried with Christ in baptism. We're not just making up words there. We're declaring that who you were prior to salvation is dead. And so there's a call to all believers to reject what is no more in your life. And then secondly, the positive side of that is live according to your new nature. Let's begin with rejecting what is no more. Now there's three areas of sin that Paul articulates here that I want to just kind of deal with individually as we think about things that we must reject. The first one is sexual immorality. I mean, you, I mean, when you read this list, those are the ones that probably catch your attention the easiest. It talks about fornication and adulterers and effeminate homosexuals, thieves, uh, those who are covetous, swindlers, all those things. But the ones that, that really sort of grab your attention, particularly in the context of which we live today, are those things of sexual immorality. The church should reject all sin. Somebody say amen to that. Okay, good. And all sin is a rebellion against God. All sin is destructive. Historically, the church has been quick to condemn sexual immorality over others like gossip and racism and covetedness and pride. 
And I think the reason is that though the church historically has been keen to publicly condemn sexual immorality, it's not always been faithful to walk in that purity. Sexual immorality is easier to deal with than gossip, isn't it? Because we gossip in our Sunday school classes, so we don't always want to call that out. We, we have unconfessed dealt with racism within our churches. Those are difficult issues to deal with. Historically, we've had a more easy issue of dealing or at least calling out on sexual immorality but not always been faithful to walk in the purity thereof. For me, the starkest testimony of this has been connected with homosexuality. In my ministry, I have known many who for many years were clear in their mind and clear on their heart when they would have read a passage like this and you would have asked them, is homosexuality contrary to the righteousness of God? Is it sin? They would have said without an issue of conscience or even a hesitation, yes. And then a family member, a nephew, a child, someone they love very dearly, chooses to live in rebellion before God in this particular area, and I have had those dear saints say to me, well, Pastor, I just can't believe that God would call that a sin because I love them so dearly, and I just can't in my mind wrap around that they would be living in rebellion before the Lord. Friends, sexual immorality is the outward expression of a heart that is rebellious before God. Paul lists several issues here. He talks first of fornication. This is the rejection of God's gift of sex for the union of marriage and the producing of children, the rejection of God's authority over your body, and the rebellion against law. Fornication is husbands and wives having sexual intercourse outside of the bonds and of marriage. I mean, excuse me, all anybody having sex outside of the bonds of marriage. Adultery is specific to, uh, uh, to marriage, and there's the rejection of the covenant of marriage and the authority of God over that covenant. And so it's husbands having intercourse with people who are not their wives, and likewise wives with people who are not their husbands. Homosexuality is the rejection of God's created order. It's perversion of God's good gift of sex. Paul uses the word here effeminate, not referring to those who do not display a cultural idea of manliness. Particularly that word in the text here is, a, is another word for homosexuality. In the Greek language, there were, there's a word both for the passive and the active roles of homosexuality, and this word refers to the passive role. There has been a mark throughout history of cultures that have lived in open rebellion of God, and that mark has been excessive sexual immorality. The Corinthian church lived in a day like our own that was characterized by gross and rampant sexual immorality. It was common and normal in the city where they lived, and many in the church had left lives of immorality when they were saved. In fact, I believe it is safe to assume that in the church there were, in the group that probably heard the reading of this letter for the very first time, there were those who were former fornicators. And there were those who were former adulterers. And there were those who were former homosexuals in the church. Sexual immorality is the characteristic of those who are lost in the darkness of sin, not the redeemed. I want you to hear me very carefully tonight. No matter what has been part of your past, 
once set free by the grace of God, do not return to acts of the flesh that are put to death at salvation. You think this is not part of the church? I'm telling you, dear friends, this is an issue that we are wrestling with passionately today. It is a rare, rare, rare thing today for two young people who have grown up in the church who are preparing to get married who are not fornicators. Oh, we don't use that word. We say, well, they made a mistake or maybe they weren't made, made good decisions. But dear friends, I'm telling you, our kids raising in our church that have heard the gospel preached from our pulpits are fornicating. We need to preach faithfully to them. That is rebellion before the Lord. But we also need to say to them, listen, once you've been set free by the, by the grace of God, once you've been transformed by the glory of God, do not return to your former manner. Live righteously before the Lord in sexual purity. There's a second a group of sins here, and that's sins against others. And it's easy to identify sexual immorality and thus more often confronted, but sins against others may not be as quickly condemned, but they are just as dangerous and deadly. Among the list of, 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 of named sins that Paul includes here would be thieves and covetedness and drunkards and revilers and swindlers. And a good case could even be made that fornication, adultery, and homosexuality also fit within this group. These sins connect with Paul's rebuke of lawsuits in the previous passage. Rebellion against God will lead to the abuse of others. There's much discussion today about social justice and social issues. In general, it seems that many who are proponents of these issues are secular humanists and are attempting to address the issues through social institutions. And so they're trying to address social injustice through legislation or through court action or even through the work and power, the, 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 the momentum of public opinion. I believe for many their motivation is to help, but their hope is misplaced. A culture that is in open rebellion to God may give public support to protecting the weak, justice for the abused, help for the oppressed. But to be in rebellion to God is to reject the truth of God. And to reject the truth of God is to elevate the will of man over the will of God. And when the will of man is elevated over the will of God, selfish ambition will overtake righteous, righteous benevolence. This past week, there was a, 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 well, a well-known person gave a speech asking people to make a case for, uh, for murdering babies in the womb, abortion. And this person said, listen, if you can't convince someone that murdering babies is a good thing for the, for the freedom of women to liberate them from the burden of being a mother, then it make an economic argument that those women who are in the workplace have added to the economy, therefore abortion is good for your wallets. You know what that is? That is speaking to a culture that could care less about the babies and cares more about their wallets than the life of innocent children. That's a culture that is in rebellion before the Lord. It's not a culture that is concerned about the weak and the oppressed. It's a culture that's only concerned about me, myself, and I. The value of each person's life is not derived from the law of the land, the Constitution, or from public opinion, but from the declared goodness of the Creator. Why are we not allowed to take the life of another 
It's not because the Constitution gives life and liberty to individuals. It's not because it's a moral opinion or a public opinion. We are not allowed to take the life of another because another has the life that God gave them and it's not ours to take. The morality that chooses honesty over thievery and swindling is not from the goodness of man, but from the heart that has been changed by a loving God. Listen to me carefully. The ability to look, to, 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 to look on another, another's blessing with, 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 uh, with covetousness is not from uh, able to look on another's blessing without being covetous is not from man's maturity or education, but from a heart of one who has known the provision and blessing of God and has learned to trust God in all things. And like sexual immorality, these things are common uh, among the world, but must not be part of the witness of the church or the life of the believers. Listen, it's not a big deal in our world today to find thieves and swindlers and coveters and all the rest, revilers and drunkards. You can find them a dime a dozen, but it must not be a part of the church. Sexual immorality, sin against one another, and then lastly, false worship. Paul included idolaters amongst the list, particularly in the midst of the list of sexual sins. In the midst of fornication, adultery, homosexuality, right there in the middle is idolatry. Sexual sin is often incorporated into pagan worship of the days of Corinth. Corinth had a sordid history of temple prostitutes and all kind of wicked perversion. So sexual immorality and idolatry for Corinth was very much intertwined. We've already said that all sin is rejection of and rebellion against God. The members of the Corinth church were very familiar with idolatry. Pagan temples were prominent in the city. In fact, probably for most of them, when they walked home at night, when they went to work in the morning, they walked by pagan temples. It's likely that many of the Christians in the church were formal idol worshipers. In fact, if they were living with non-believers in their home, they may have even had idols in their homes. Idol worship has always been common among the world. And though there may not be temples today, idol worship is still very much with us. Idol worship is giving worship glory and sacrifice that the Lord alone is worthy of to the things of this world and the things of man. And in the darkness of sin, all of us were worshipers of idols. Through Through the sacrifice of Jesus, Christians have been set free from the enslavement to such sin. And the command and call is to turn away from the sins of our former life and to return to them no more. So here's what Paul's saying. Listen, some of you used to be sexual immoral, sexually immoral. Do not return. Some of you were actively sinning against one another. Do not return to that. Some of you were idol worshipers. You were giving your life and your heart and your worship to things that man made and the things of this world. Do not return to those things. You are dead to those things in Christ. Reject them as your former life, but reject them and return to them no more. There's the negative. Here's the positive. Live according to your New nature. Listen to what he listen to the turn that Paul gives. If you ended right there at verse 9, it's pretty depressing. 
Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Now let me tell you what would happen if, the, if it ended right there. Everybody in this room would identify with one of the sins there and go, man, I'm in really big trouble. I'm in big trouble. And then Paul says, verse 11, such were some of you, there's an understatement, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. So he's calling them to live according to their new nature. So three things are part of their new nature. Number one, they have a new identity. Shame and embarrassment cause you to want to hide and keep secrets. <laughs> if you've got something right now that you hope nobody ever finds out about, it's because you're ashamed of it, you're embarrassed of it. In keeping secrets, you enslave yourself to keeping up the appearance. You're hiding, and so you're essentially enslaved to that, that keeping of the secret. The list of sins in verses 9 and 10 is not exhaustive. Furthermore, Paul is not saying that if you commit one of these sins or, or, or some other sin that you lose your salvation. That's not the point here. Paul is making a contrast. Some of you were, th these things were part of some of your life, but you were washed, sanctified, justified. In other words, the contrast is this may be who you used to be, but it is not who you are today. It is likely that many of the Christians in the church could identify with the sins on Paul's list. In the church, therefore, there were many former fornicators and idolaters and homosexuals and uh, uh, adulterers and thieves and coveters and swindlers and drunkards and revilers. But don't miss the main point of verse 10. These things used to be part of their identities. They used to be identified by them. You are a drunk. But these things are no more part of their identity. In Christ, you are a new creation. In Christ, you are no longer defined by your sin. Did you hear that? You are no longer defined by your sin. Somebody say amen. Oh, that's a good word. In Christ, you're defined by the grace of God. Where shame and embarrassment enslave you to hide, grace stands in the light of truth that recognizes the brokenness of sin but celebrates the grace of God. So what Paul is saying to these people is, yeah, 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 I know your former nature. I know what you used to do, but you stand up in the grace of God because you have a new identity in Jesus. A new identity. Secondly, new relationships. Verse 11 gives three adjectives that describe a sinner who's been saved. Washed, sanctified, justified. To be washed is to be made clean of the stain of sin. All sin stains. So what was it? All sin leaves a stain you cannot remove. When forgiven by Jesus, he washes away all the stains and defilement of sin. 1 John 1, we confess our sins. He's faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. From the Old Testament, Psalm 51, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Isaiah chapter 1, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord, Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be wool. And then again to the New Testament, Revelation 7, I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 
That's where James Nicholson's hymn, Whiter Than Snow, Yes, Whiter Than Snow, Wash Me and I Shall Be Whiter Than Snow, that's where he's getting that phrase from. To be sanctified is to be made holy, presentable to God, acceptable to God, and to be justified is to be made right. In all of these things, there's a testimony of a changed relationship. Don't miss the beautiful contrast. What Paul is saying is that former fornicators have been made right with God. Former idolaters have been been justified before God. Former adulterers have been washed of their sin. Saved homosexuals have been justified of their sin. Saved thieves and coveters and swindlers have been made right. Saved drunkards and revilers, all of those things. That was who you used to be. And and in in those sins, you were separated from God. But now in the washing, in the sanctification, in in the justification of God, you've been given a new relationship with the Lord. The work of washing and sanctifying and justifying transforms your relationship. To God, you become acceptable. To the church, you become related by blood. And to the world, you become separate if you have young children in your house you'll understand what I'm about to tell you if you're getting ready for church on Sunday morning or you're getting ready for some family event that everybody's got to dress up for and you got little kids in your house you, you always get them dressed first and then after you get their hair combed and their teeth brushed and them in their nice clothes you, you take them to the den, you sit them on the couch, and you say, do not move. I, I don't know how it happens, because if they move off that couch, dirt just jumps on them. You definitely don't let them outside. I mean, it won't take them 30 seconds, and they will have undone what it took you all morning to do. <laughs> Amen. Having washed them, dressed them in fine clothes, brushed their hair, and prepared them for the event, you do not want them to undo it by getting dirty before you arrive. Now, once you get there, you let them go, and and they get dirty in a hurry. Friends, by the blood of Jesus, you have been made ready for the presence of God. Related to God, you have been justified and sanctified. Your sin has been, you've been cleansed of your sin, and as a result of that, you are able to stand in the presence of God No longer a sinner condemned, but one washed, sanctified, and justified before the Lord. And one last thing. I think there's something to be said for new desires. There's also a recognition here that the work of salvation produces in a believer new desires. In sin, no one has a desire to please the Lord and walk in righteousness. But in salvation, filled with the Spirit of God, believers desire to obey God, please God, and be right in right relationship with Him. Listen to what he says. You've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. In other words, God has transformed you to be like Him and not like the sin that stained you. This is not to say that believers are not tempted. However, if you, if you are not if you, if you are, are not, you, the, the idea here is that you are not to live according to your former nature. You're to put away, turn away, reject the, the temptations of the flesh. You're, put, you're to put to death the desires of the flesh, and you are to live according to the righteousness of Jesus and the spirit of which he has filled you with. This contrast, old nature, old desire, old identity, 
and new identity, new desire, new nature was on was 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 debated very publicly recently um, because of a conference that was held. In July of this year, a, a conference was held in St. Louis, Missouri called the Revoice Conference. Most of you probably didn't pay much attention to it. It it garnered a lot of heat and controversy within theological circles, but but unless you were paying attention to that, you, you probably didn't hear much about it. The conference attempted to strike a new tone and, and start a new discussion concerning the LGBTQ, XYZ persons and their relationship, particularly to the church. I went to their website, and I just wanted to be very specific about what they wanted to do. So here's their stated purpose. Their stated purpose was to encourage, support, and empower gay, lesbian, and other same-sex-attracted Christians so they can experience the life-giving character of the holistic Christian sexual ethic. Okay? Their vision was to see LGBT people who adhere to the historic Christian sexual ethic flourish in their local faith communities, and their belief was that the Bible restricts sexual activity to the context of a marriage covenant, which is defined in the Bible as the emotional, spiritual, and physical union of a man and a woman that is ordered toward procreation. Now, the conference grew controversy on both sides. The LGBTQ uh, community hated it because the conference said, well, we, we believe in a biblical understanding of sexuality and that, and that the, only, the only faithful biblical way to express that is one man with one woman in the covenant of marriage. And frankly, a lot of people in the church heard that and we thought, that's certainly something to be celebrated. That is good, is it not? That's what we believe and, and to think about that conversation happening amongst that community of, of how they can live out faithfully within the context of the church, their uh, faithful sexuality, and that, that, that seems like a good thing. And, and I think in part there ought to be part of us that we say and reach out to them and say, yes, that's encouraging. But here was the problem. On the one hand, it was refreshing to learn that there is a group of people who identify as LGBT and who believe the Bible to be true and who are desiring to live out their faith and obedience. But the problem with the conference was in identity. Listen to me carefully. The conference attempted to find a way to live faithfully to the Lord while remaining identified with sin. And this is the very thing that Paul is rejecting in verse 10. So, some of you in this room, if you were to tell your story today, you would have to tell part of your story. If you were totally honest, you, you struggle with racism. You, you, you have hated people on the, on the base of their skin, and you not love them according to the righteous creation they are before the Lord. But when you walk around the church, you don't say, hey, my name is so-and-so, I'm a racist Christian. It'd be weird if you did, and I hope you won't do that. Some of you, you love to gossip. It's like a morsel on your tongue, and you struggle with that, and you're asking God daily to mortify that sin in your life, and so you're wishing that it would die, and you're working, but you don't walk around the church and go, hey, I'm a gossiping Christian. It would be weird, and I don't want you to do that. Some of you have... Have, your testimony includes sexual immorality. And you don't walk around the church going, hi, I'm a fornicating Christian. 
Hi, I'm an adulterer Christian. Now, the reason we do that is not because we're trying to hide your sin. And the reason we don't do that is because we are trying to pretend like we don't have those sins in our church. The reason why we don't do that is because in grace, we're not identified with our sin. We're identified with Jesus. Somebody say amen. And so what do we say to one another? I am a sinner washed by the blood of Jesus. (laughs) Praise the Lord. I'm a defiled person who's been sanctified by the blood of Jesus. I'm one who was dead in my sin, but I've been made right and justified by the blood of Jesus. That's my identity. And that's what Paul is saying to the church. Listen, I know your story has all kinds of things that you wish weren't in your story. And I know that if you tell your testimony, you'll tell a testimony of sin and brokenness. Some of that sin is defiled and wicked. But listen, your identity is not in your sin. Your identity is in Christ. You've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. That is where your identity is. Reject what is no more and live according to the nature and the identity and the character that God has made in you.